Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Forefront 360, where we take you around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. My name is Sean O'Hare, and I'm the newest member of the Forefront team. Today, we have a very special episode because I'm joined by Dr. Alistair Roberts, who is calling all the way from the UK. Uh, Alistair, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Today, I uh, wanted to have you on and discuss the recent book that you and Andrew Wilson have recently published. But before we get to that, uh, I was just hoping that you could give us a quick introduction and just give us a little bit of background on your academic training and theological training and a little bit of what you are currently up to. Sure. Um, My training has been mostly in the UK. I did a master's at the University of St Andrews and then in Durham University I did my PhD which was on the Red Sea Crossing and Christian Baptism which obviously relates in part to the book that we'll be discussing and within that I was very interested in the relationship between liturgy and typology so the forms of our worship and the reading of scripture and the patterns within scripture since finishing my PhD, I've been writing, I've been involved in speaking, um, teaching in various organisations. I've been particularly involved with the Davenant Institute, which is where we first got to know each other, and then also the Theopolis Institute. That work takes me to the UK, uh, takes me to the US, I do some work in the UK as well. And at the moment, I'm spending much of my time just producing podcasts, videos, things like that. I have my own YouTube channel, which I've been doing daily videos on. And I'm also involved in the Mere Fidelity podcast and the Theopolis podcast. So you're just wasting a lot of time. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. You you don't have a a lot on your plate at this point. (laughs) Actually, you're probably just spending a bunch of time playing word games, right? (laughs) That has been. Is that one of your guilty uh, pleasures, right? It has been in the past. I've not played so many li- recently, but yes, it used to be quite an obsession. I'm not going to lie. When, when we spent time at the uh, the Davenant house for that, uh, one of the summer, summer programs that you, you taught last year, I watched you play some of those word games. And I may or may not have walked away from that wondering if you had if you were slightly robotic, just if you were a bit <laughs> of a robot. This, it, let's just say it was not exactly... Uh, human speeds at which you're operating. (laughs) Now that we've got that very serious comment out of the way, um, I was hoping that you could just give us um, a bit of background for uh, writing the book because, uh, and to just give our listeners a little bit of background in my personal connection with you here. Um, When I was at that summer program, uh, we focused on a lot of other things. We talked a lot about Christian ethics and Christian wisdom. And it was really fun. We got a chance to spend time with a few other students there as well. Um, but over the course of that week, uh, your I believe your book had just come out. Is that correct? It was recently released. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we got a chance to talk a little bit about the backstory there. Uh, so yeah, if you could just walk us through um, the origins of this project and uh, why you and Andrew Wilson decided now would be a good, a good time to take up this this topic. Yes. Um, my PhD topic was closely related to the issue of the Exodus and its patterns playing out throughout scripture. It was chiefly focused on the relationship between it and between typology and reading the Bible typologically and liturgy. But 
as a side project over Lent. Over Lent, I often like to take up some new project or I like to um, give up something and take up something. And so for this Lent, I thought what I'll do is I'll have 40 days of Exodus. As a blog series, every single day I'll blog about one particular Exodus motif as we see it within the scripture. So I'd talk about the story of Noah, or I'd talk about the story of um, Jacob in the house of Laban, or I'd talk about um, the story of Moses as he goes, leaves Egypt and goes into um, stay with Jethro and all that sort of story. And then talk about later parts in scripture, for instance, the capture of the ark in the place in the land of the Philistines and show that each one of these is an Exodus pattern that's playing out and lead it all the way into the New Testament. That was the design. After a few um, weeks had passed, I realized that this just was not going to happen. I reached about 22 of the 40 and it was just too much. Each day I was writing about four, five thousand words on this project, which was just not realistic, along with my PhD subject and all the work that I had to do on that. So it played into a lot of my PhD studies. So I wasn't studying specifically for it. I was just writing stuff I'd researched elsewhere. That project lay abandoned on my blog. And on my blog, I found that if I blog about any social controversial issue, I'll get lots of hits. If I blog about biblical issues, very few by comparison. Mm, surprise surprise right yes it's one of the patterns i've noticed but a few years after doing that i think it was in 2013 i did this um andrew wilson with whom um i produced the mere fidelity podcast with others he contacted me he said i've been reading through your um 40 days of exodus series really impressed and really wanted to share this with people more widely would you be interested in collaborating on a book project at a popular level, presenting some of this material. And so the suggestion was that I continue that series, sketch out the rest of the project. And I'd written substantial notes for many of the later sections of that project, which I didn't get round to writing in full. So I sent those along with the original um, parts and some other things that I've written around the issue to Andrew, and then we collaborated. He was mostly writing the popular version that you actually read within the text. So I sent him 150,000 words of notes and he condensed it to 40,000 words of readable text, um, which is accessible and enjoyable to read, which my original prose was not. That was one of the things that struck me. I was reading through is this very, very accessible book. I got through it uh, in a few days and it's even, you know, structured with shorter chapters and then, uh, simulating questions at the end that really help the the topics that you guys address in the chapters really sink in. Um, and that actually leads into one of the other things I wanted to touch on is that because of how conducive this is to um, a church taking it up, you know, a small group within the church taking it up and reading through it together, um, that I think begs the the question of its relevance to the church. And I think it implies that you and Andrew think that it's uh, a very important idea to uh, dive into. So, and you guys, you guys even address that in the the beginning of the book. So can you just kind of walk us through why you guys thought that this is an important thing for the church to be reminded of? When we read the Bible, I think often we think about those literary elements within the text as 
mere icing on the cake or some decorative element that looks pretty but has no real significance or importance to it. That maybe if you're a scholar, you might want to study these things. But if you're talking about the person in the pew, they don't really need to think about this. And it's actually distracting them from learning the moral lessons of the Bible. But yet, when you read through the Bible and understand the way that it works typologically, it it reveals, I think, that the literary elements are actually part of the meaning of the text. And explain what I mean by that, that when we're reading, for instance, the story of David, and we see the story of David playing out themes of the story of Jacob, we see a connection between those two characters. And we see the way that David is developing this character of Jacob in interesting ways that help us to understand the moral significance of what David is doing. So, for instance, David goes to the house of Nabal and he's protecting, he protects Nabal's property and other things like that. He, his men are a blessing to Nabal in principle, but yet Nabal treats him unfairly and cruelly. And then he gets angry and he seeks to go after Nabal with 400 men. And he's prevented by um, Abigail, the wife of Nabal, who sends on gifts ahead of her and then meets him and prevents him from attacking and talks him down from what he was about to do. Now that story is an interesting one within the context of 1 Samuel, but if you read it against the background of the Genesis story, you'll notice a number of interesting details. Nabal is Laban backwards. If we read the story of Esau and Jacob, Esau comes out to attack Jacob with 400 men. And Jacob prevents him from attacking by sending on gifts ahead and talking him down. And in the same way, we see these patterns playing out within that story that helps us to interpret what's going on. Now, that's just one of a myriad of examples that could be given. But within the New Testament, these things become very clearly part of what it means to understand what Christ is doing. We're told, for instance, that Christ is the one who will accomplish an exodus at Jerusalem in the um, encounter with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, they discuss the Exodus, literally, that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And when we read the story of the Exodus, we'll see a lot of parallels with the story of the Gospels that help us to understand what Christ is doing, that it occurs at the Passover time, that there is the um, sacrifice of the Passover lamb, there are themes of the death of the firstborn, there's Um, this deliverance of people from slavery and bondage. There's the defeat of a Pharaoh-like figure. And as we read through the Gospels more generally, we see these things throughout the Gospels. So if you're looking at the beginning of Matthew, at the beginning of Matthew, you see Herod trying to kill the baby boys. And Herod is a Pharaoh-like figure. But then Pharaoh is surrounded by his court, which are the chief priests and the scribes, And the people who come from afar, following the light in the heavens, they are the magi, the magicians that we might expect to be associated with the court of Herod or um, Pharaoh. They're actually the guys that come to worship Christ. And so we see lots of these literary themes that help us to interpret what's taking place. And then we can move from those to relating it to our lives as we begin to get a fuller understanding of the patterns that are playing out within the text, and more importantly, how we fit into those patterns. So within 
1 Corinthians 10, Paul can speak about all of our fathers passed through the cloud and the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all partook of the same spiritual drink and all ate the same spiritual food and partook of the same spiritual drink. The rock that followed them was Christ, etc. And he tells the story of the Exodus as a story that occurs according to the paradigm of Christian salvation. So baptism, participating in the Lord's Supper, these sorts of things. And then he goes on to say that all of these things happen to them as examples for us. So we're supposed to read that story and think, these are our forefathers. We're finding ourselves within this story. The things that happen to them are examples for us. And as we look at their story, we'll begin to understand where we are now and the significance of what it means to follow Christ and to find our identity in him in the present. And then read those stories from the Old Testament, not just as odd stories of things that happened back then to them, but stories that are vitally concerned with us. They give us a sense of who we are. They are stories that look us directly in the eye. Yeah, and that actually leads to um, a follow-up question is more on a personal level. I was just wondering, you know, in the process of engaging with this work initially, and then all the work that you guys did to um, produce this book, is there any particular ways that you've seen that borne out in your own spiritual um, walk and, you know, shaping some of your own habits or your own thought patterns? I think one of the key differences it has made for me is enabling me to experience the reading of scripture more as a spiritual activity. The danger when you're raised within an evangelical background is that reading the Bible becomes a chore. You're expected to do it every single day. You're supposed to have your quiet time, whatever. And scripture can seem like a slog. But when you begin to recognize just how beautiful the text is, how um, rich and densely connected these um patterns are and then how vitally relevant they are to your own life reading scripture becomes a lot more of a devotional experience but not devotional in the narrow individualistic way that we often think about devotional approaches to scripture it's something for instance that can give us a sense of who we are as a body of people not just as individuals and that coming of the scriptural the way that scripture comes to life and very much looks us directly in the eye i think that's been something that i've had a, a far more pronounced sense of after or through the process of reading the book and researching these issues it's really intensified my sense of that interesting that actually flows really well into one of the other elements that i want to unpack here um i'm just going to read it an excerpt actually from the very first chapter. Um, and to, to anyone who has read what I've written about the book before on the blog or listened to our previous conversation with uh, the Forefront team, this is one of the things that to me stuck out a lot um, was your uh, highlighting of the musical character of scripture. Um, I just want to read the first paragraph here. It says, uh, scripture is music. We use musical metaphors all the time when we talk about the scriptures without even thinking about it. We might describe the Bible as a symphony or a love song. We might refer to the opening of Genesis as an overture or to Revelation as a finale. 
We might talk about the story being composed or perhaps orchestrated by God, with themes and rhythms and echoes running through it, all building to a crescendo. If we are handling some of the difficult sections, we might say that there is a clash here or a discordant note there, but that there is always, ultimately, a harmony within the word of God, and therefore that we can expect things to resolve. We could describe John as writing in a different key than the other three Gospels, or Chronicles as transposed versions of Kings. We might even identify specific books with particular musical modes or styles. Job is the blues, Ecclesiastes is jazz, some of the Psalms are in the minor key, or whatever. Much of our language for scripture is musical. Uh, so I very well may have stolen a lot of your thunder there, but uh, <laughs> I was just wondering if you could uh, take us through why reading scripture with a musical uh, framework is particularly helpful and also maybe um, compare that with other approaches to reading scripture. Certainly. I think particularly in the modern world, um, after the Enlightenment, we've tended to approach thought and um, the objects of thought primarily through the eye and the eye's dominance within the sensorium and its tendency to frame everything in a spatialized way, I think has made it difficult for us to understand certain concepts. So within certain types of theology, there's often been a tendency to spatialize time. So we think about time in terms of spatialized oppositions, the opposition between old and new, where those two things are held alongside each other as if within space, where they're synchronically viewed, but there's no sense of movement through time. And one of the things that music does is music is the most, is the fullest and most um, subtle way that we have of exploring the movement of time. Time is something that is complicated, that we do not have many metaphors that are apt for understanding it. But yet music is something that gets at the heart of the way that time works and why time is so charged, so significant. What does it feel like to be in the middle of time, not just at the end of it? So, for instance, we often think about concepts such as context in ways that evacuate the temporal elements. So we think of context very much in a spatialized sense, but often context is something that's playing out over time. And, for instance, if you're listening to a piece of music, there are movements that take place that you have to pass through. It's not a piece that you regard in its totality from outside. Um, you have to go through passages to truly experience it. It takes you on an itinerary, whereas we tend to view things in terms of a map. And that map approach really does not get at the heart of much of what Scripture has to say. So what's the relationship between someone like David and Christ? If you're purely thinking in terms of the map, you'll think about type, anti-type, spatialized relationship between the two. But there's a passage by which you're taken from the character of David to the character of Christ. And there are motifs that develop the themes of David. There are motifs that David himself is developing. David, as I've already discussed, is like Jacob. And he's like other characters that we see in the earlier part of the Old Testament. And as we explore time, I think we'll find that music is a metaphor that is apt for discussing something like 
the patterns of Christian life, that every single week, I mean, the world is shaped by temporal patterns, whether that's the vibrations of quartz crystal that we use to keep time, or whether it's something like the movement of the planets, or whether it's the beating of the heart, whether it's the fluttering of a bird's wings, whatever it is, these are temporal processes and there are rhythms and patterns that are being played out. And it's part of the beauty of creation that you have all these overlaying patterns and our whole lives are characterised by these cycles. At the very start of scripture, I think you have a sense of the importance of temporality. We often can read the creation of light on the first day as the creation of just an object in the heavens, a bright luminance, sort of luminance within the heavens. But the creation is the daylight. So it's evening and morning, that pattern, it's as if God's striking up a beat. And then on the fourth, the middle day of creation, we have the sun, moon and stars placed in the heavens to rule over the day and the night to create um, signs for times and seasons and for years. And then we have at the very end, the final day is a day of rest that brings to a conclusion the whole pattern, the whole cycle of the, the week of creation. The other thing that I think we find with music is it helps us to get beyond some of the impasse that we have with ways of thinking about time. So some will say the Bible celebrates a linear time in opposition to cyclical time, where you just have this constant repeat and nothing is changing. It has a sense of history moving forward, progressing. And it does have that, but there's no reason... If you accept a more musical mo- a more musical metaphor or set set of musical metaphors for thinking about these things, there's no reason that we have to see those things as mutually ex- exclusive. There are ways to recognize that time itself can be forward moving while repeating patterns and cycles that times that have existed in the past are implicated in the present. We can go through the same patterns again. So for instance, in the context of worship, Every week as we gather together, it's as if, for instance, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's as if in the work of Christ, this great stone were dropped into the middle of a lake with the ripples going out from that, leading towards the the bank of the shore. And it's as if we find ourselves on that. And every single week, we're hit by a new ripple from that great big event in the middle of history. And we're drawn by those progressive Um, ripples towards the shore of God's future and that is something I think that gives us a better sense of what it means to be connected with that past when we talk about scripture often we think about our connection with Christ union with Christ in very spatialized terms so to be in Christ is to be in Christ in a very spatial sense But perhaps it would be better to think of it as a connection that's not spatial, but um, musical and temporal in character. That Christ has gone before us and the spirit catches us up in the slipstream of Christ so that our history is shaped by his history and our lives are being shaped according to the music that Christ has established. And we're living out that motif that is playing out throughout the rest of history subsequently. And that gives us a sense of what unity with Christ could mean and being um, bound up with Christ in a way that's not just spatializing and in a way that has a sense of the opening out of history after Christ, that there is a series of 
Christ brings resolution to all these themes of the Old Testament, but also creates this sort of tension that's waiting for the resolution of the Spirit, as the Spirit fills out what Christ has started, and in the life of his people, um, plays out all these themes in the fullest and most beautiful fashion. And it also helps us to think about those themes of resolution. How do we relate to the future and the ways that times can interpenetrate? That there's a sense that we can already anticipate the end. For instance, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there is a remembrance of what has gone before. We memorialize the Lord's death, but we do so until he comes. And there's an anticipation of the wedding supper of the Lamb, that last great feast, even as we're recalling all those other feasts that have gone before, the Passover, and we're celebrating the Last Supper. We're also celebrating all the resurrection meals that Christ celebrated with his disciples. And in that way, I think it gives us a sense of being at this integrating point of a vast history. We're connected with all these stories that have gone before us. These are our stories. We're caught up in the music of them. And it also helps us to think about a broader sense of being caught up. Music, we move with music, we dance to music, and music is something that isn't just um, something that we listen to in a still way, sometimes we do, but music in many contexts is something that invites us to move with it, to respond to it in a way that makes us part of the process. It gives us a template for movement. And when we're thinking about liturgy, when we're thinking about worship, when we're talking about the gathering together of the people of God, I think that's part of what's taking place, that the music of God's history catches us up within it and moves our body of people um, as individuals and as a group. And then that music propels us out into the rest of the week. Yeah, and particularly that last point about the, the joining in on the the being compelled to move along with the music. I think that's particularly relevant to um, a lot of what um, we think about here at Forefront in terms of uh, responding to the creative works of, of God and really becoming attuned to the song that he's playing and the specific roles that he's given us to, to play out. And so that, you know, that is something that really struck out to me because the the creation of art is rightly viewed with this larger context that you're describing the, the the creation of art is rightly viewed within the larger story of um god's creation of of art and um i think that was a very powerful thing that i took away from that book um as someone who is a creative person myself being assured that my participation in creative processes is uh, is attuned to God's larger project that's going on throughout history. Um, so that was really exciting uh, coming away with that. One of the other things too, that I wanted to touch on along those lines is um, going back real quick to our time at Davenant, the Davenant house. One thing that I recall is uh, through the course of the week, someone uh, ended up bringing uh, an older Bible. I want to say it's, it was a few hundred years old we got a chance to look through that and it was really, it was really incredible. And one of the things that stood out to me was how much this piece of scripture was itself a work of art. Um, and even apart from the, the ways that you're describing in terms of the textual 
origins of it, but just like the way that the uh, lettering was constructed and the, the drawings throughout um, depicting the various stories that were happening um, in the pages of scripture. Um, and that just got me thinking along the lines of how integral art and beauty have been to Christian faith and practice pretty much from the beginning. Um, so I was wondering, are there any particularly relevant things that stand out to you along those lines? Is there, um, can you walk us through some of the um, influential ways that art and beauty have shaped Christian practice and liturgy and just the Christian life in general? Yes. When we're thinking about art, what we're often thinking about is something that educates and trains and directs imagination and desire. And one of the ways that Christian truth has really been um, worked into people's lives is through careful artistic development of buildings, of liturgies, of music, and creation of contexts in which people are attuned to something of the beauty of of God's truth. That God's truth is not merely a set of, um, it's not just a set of propositions, it's not just a set of facts about the world. There's something that's beautiful, something that should move us, something that should educate our imaginations as well. So when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, for instance, we're celebrating something that is has an artistic character to it. It is a performance that should draw our attention towards, uh, should train us in certain habits of action, habits of relation, should order us out into the week. It gives us a template for action a template of relating to each other in a particular way, a template of relating to the creation in a particular way, taking it and giving thanks um, and finding God's presence within it. It gives us a template for recognising our unity in the body of Christ. You gave the example of the Bible. Um, We often can think about the Bible as a mass-produced, privately-owned, printed-bound text, everything contained between two covers. And it's similar to the question of what is a Shakespearean play? Is a Shakespearean play a book that you pull down off a shelf and you can flick through Hamlet and read it and study it maybe in a high school English class? Or is Hamlet something that is primarily discovered as you see that script being performed on the stage by a troupe of gifted Shakespearean actors? In the same way, what is the Bible primarily? If we're thinking about it primarily as a book that's privately owned and that is just sitting on a shelf, maybe you're missing something of the richness of what this text is. And one way that I encourage people to think about the significance of art is to reflect upon the form that we encounter scripture within. So the medieval Bible, for instance, would often be bound in treasure binding with rich, um, costly jewels, with gold or silver it would be something that would be processed into the congregation that you still have you still have that in some contexts today but this was a specific object that represented the bond between the word of god and that body of people it would be something that would have a genealogy each text would be descended from particular other texts that had preceded it and it would require specific skills it would be an art object if you Look, for instance, even if you take the example of something like a Gutenberg printed Bible, 
when one of those Bibles was printed upon vellum, it would take the skins of 180 calves to make just one of those Bibles. These were costly items. They were beautiful items. They required a great deal of skill to construct. They reflected their provenance. They weren't just things that could be made any old where. They required a certain set of conditions. So in the northeast of England, where I used to live, it was a centre of book production, in part because you have a lot of rain. And where you have a lot of rain, you have healthy sheep. Where you have healthy sheep, you have good skins, and you can make books of a high quality. It also requires communities of skilled artisans and um, scribes and other people within the originally the monastic scriptoria and then later on you have secular scriptoria but these are objects that help us to understand something about what the bible is if we think about the bible just as an abstract text and fail to think about the form in which it comes to us the form in which we experience it the form in which we um, primarily imagine it it will be difficult to it'd be difficult to have the full experience of what the scripture can be. Another example I give is people often don't think closely enough about why did Paul write letters? And what is the significance of a letter as distinct from another form of writing? If Paul had just written books, that would have been different. But in writing letters, what he did was create something of what he was writing about. So every time he sent a letter, he was sending it to a particular congregation. He was building up that particular church, but that church had to then pass that letter around to other churches. And in doing so, they were giving their example to other churches. They were forming a network of lots of different churches that were connected to each other. And then they were also sending on ministers or servants of their church with that document in a way that built bonds between the different churches as communities of shared witness so that's one example of just thinking about the bible itself as a physical object or as uh, its formats and other things like that another thing is i find a building like a cathedral i used to be a tour guide in durham cathedral on a volunteer basis and within durham cathedral what you see is this is a building that's an externalization of so many of the um, aspects of the faith and the commitment of the community. That building has been formed over centuries through the work of many gifted people who have invested their lives and their skills and their gifts in the creation of something beautiful that externalizes their values. And we can often think about the church as just the people. And there's a sense in which that's true. But in the same way, we could say that a home is just the love that exists within a family. But when there's a true love within a family, one of the things you do is you create places, homely places. You create a context where you eat meals together, where you um, have the experience of um, inhabiting a place that is made beautiful by your presence within it. And a cathedral is a place that can be a site of pilgrimage. It can be a a landmark. Everywhere you go within the city, you can see Durham Cathedral. It's something that stands out, that orients your gaze upwards. Within it, it's a sanctuary that, again, gives you a sense of silence as presence, not just as absence, 
that there's a charged silence within a place like that. There's also a height to it that for very artistic reasons and also for reasons of um, human psychology, we relate to that height in a way that elevates our thoughts and draws our attention upwards. Even the artist artistry of creating the new sorts of um, vaulting on the roof, it was a innovative um, form of architecture at the time, it allows more light into the building. And light and the stained glass and these sorts of things are means by which we have an experience of a place as lit by a beauty beyond itself, that there is something that passes through into, into the realm that is not just um, neutral light, but we're drawn the light becomes something that we have our attention drawn to that light as a presence, as it's coloured, as it's dappled, as it is something that is both veiled and revealed by the window. And all these different forms of art that you see within a building like a cathedral, musical forms of art like the music that is played and the forms of instruments that is played upon these great organs that are massive things and the carpentry and the masonry what you're seeing within a building like that is something that's created in order to draw your attention and direct your attention in an appropriate way and there's a lot of thought that's put into that that is not merely for the sake of beauty as an end in itself but beauty put to the purpose of something that's good and true and something that draws our attention towards the transcendent and bears a, a, a humble witness to something far greater than itself. And I believe that Christian art can do something, it can aspire to think things like that, that there is something about beauty that transfigures us. When you see people who have witnessed some beautiful event and a performance of a piece of music or something, they you can see it in their faces. The hardness and the cynicism can often wash away and you see a shining character to their face, that they become innocent of face, they become open, and there's a certain childlikeness that emerges. It's the same sort of thing that you see in love, that in the Song of Songs, for instance, in Scripture, there's a, an opening up to the world and a sense of the... Um, fertility and the liveliness of the world that's expressed even in the form of its um, deeply fecund metaphors what you're experiencing there is something of the way that beauty can open us up and transfigure us and in Christian faith I think that leads us to an understanding of how beauty can be a weak testimony to a greater reality of our being transfigured, transfigured by the beauty of Christ we do not know what we will one day be, but when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. What we see transforms us. And Christian art, I think, can be part. That's one of the purposes that Christian art can perform. That's excellent. Um, and one of the other things that I have heard you talk a lot about in, in various contexts um, is the the development of... Uh, Christian wisdom and and learning how to properly um, relate to the world around us culturally and emotionally uh, and spiritually and you know and, and many other aspects so just to kind of further pull on that thread a little bit 
Can you tell us some of the ways that you think Christian art and art, you know, in pursuit of God's larger creative narrative that he's laid out for us in scripture and the world around us. Can you tell us a little bit about how Christian art can teach us to develop Christian wisdom? Yes. If you look through scripture, one of the things you'll possibly notice is that there's a progression um, from a form of literature that's very much focused upon the law, do this, don't do that, it could be called a priestly form of literature, to a form of literature that's associated with kings. Kings who um, have, they judge and they are characterized by wisdom. So the wisdom literature is kingly literature. It's associated with figures like Solomon and David. But it's also literature that's associated with song, with the Psalms, with the Song of Songs. It's associated with wisdom and the ability to perceive things in the world, to have a vision, to have a sense of not just do this, don't do that, good, bad, but something of the beauty and it's a timeliness. So if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a time for this, there's a time for that. And wisdom is recognising the time, keeping time. And there's something about music to that, but there's also something about the there's something about the wise person as artist. Solomon was someone who composed proverbs. He perceived patterns within nature and he brought those to light. He was also someone who was associated with the building of the temple, with that great work of beauty, with the beauty of Israel as a nation, as its kingdom came to its full flowering. There's something about his way of approaching the world, a way characterized by wisdom that's associated with beauty and with art and with the ability to move from just words and laws to song and delight. And that's particularly, I think, within a book like Song of Songs, what you see is an experience of the world that is characterized by desire, beauty, where things come alive in a new way, in the experience of love. Um, Love, again, is something that comes to a fuller expression within the context of the um, wisdom literature within the period of the kings. And that's not surprising. Art and love very much go together. As Augustine talked about it, it's the lover who sings. That there is perhaps no greater power provoking us to produce beauty within the world than that experience of love and delight in God's works, in the love of another human being, in the love of creation itself that provokes a way of seeing things that is new, that is exciting, that things are charged with a sense of presence. And so I think that wisdom is a training of the eye, a training of the senses, a training of the ear to hear patterns. It's it's that ri- that rise to a greater level of discernment. So you're not just told, do this, don't do that. It's one of the areas that also leads to freedom. If we think about wisdom more generally and the artist, when you're beginning in the process of learning a musical instrument, you have to play your scales, for instance. You have to follow rules that are very precise, that tell you exactly what to do. But as you develop maturity you're able to discern what is the 
way to take a piece of music. You're able to improvise. You're able to experiment. You're able, at a certain point, to create new things yourself. And that, I believe, is one of the things that we see developing with wisdom more generally as a principle. That wisdom as a principle teaches us that um, we are to be people who form the world in a creative way. Not just in a rote um do this, don't do that way, but we're supposed to create beauty in a creative manner. It's one of the ways that we see God training humanity, that God trains humanity in his own work, that God has created the world as a realm of beauty and delight. And he brings Adam under his wing, as it were, at the beginning, places him within the garden, within this very basic setting, and then gives him some some fundamental tasks to perform then teaches him by getting him to do some basic jobs, like naming the animals. As we develop in working alongside God and under God, I believe that we can rise to this level of a greater wisdom, which I think reflects God's creative work in a fuller sense as we create things that are beautiful, uh, things that inspire delight, things that enter into something of what God himself did in creating a world that is filled with things that are wonderful and things that spark awe and desire or um, the delight that arises within us as a very natural response to the goodness of these objects. And so I think art and wisdom are very closely connected. Well, that, uh, that seems like an excellent place to conclude our conversation here. Um, I just want to say, Alistair, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really been great to dive into this stuff a little bit more with you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah. Um, where can people go to follow your work and just kind of keep up with what you're writing and uh, podcasting or YouTubing or whatever? Um, probably the best places to go to are my um, blog, Alistair Adversaria. I also have another blog, which is devoted to my podcast, which is just adversaria podcast and apart from that the mere fidelity podcast the theopolis podcast and i do work with the theopolis and davenant institutes and um, so we'll be having another course on wisdom this summer we'll be with theopolis i'll be doing work with them as well there's a junior fellows program with them where we're training people to um learn how to read their bible in a fuller way how to and um, practice liturgy and other forms of Christian wisdom. Wonderful. To everyone listening, uh, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Uh, if you guys find this uh, conversation engaging, you can find many more just like it on the blog that we run over at ForefrontFestival.com. And you can also go ahead and follow us on social media. Uh, we hope that our work can really inspire and equip you to make excellent art for um, God's glory. And so on behalf of the entire Forefront team, goodbye for now. <laughs>